You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. He's lost last night 8-4. to Tough first inning for Luis Severino. Mets lost last night uh, at City Field in their series opener against the Blue Jays. 3-0. Terrifically pitched game by both Chris Bassett and Justin Verlander. Uh, Toronto got a late two-run home run off the Mets' bullpen to make it 3 to nothing. And they are finally, after the lengthy Hall of Fame induction ceremony for the Mets, underway at City Field this afternoon. Tyler McGill is on the mound for the Mets. They're going to the bottom of the second inning, and they are still scoreless. Toronto did load the bases in the first inning, and McGill pitched out of that jam. Last night, though, the Mets, the Mets pitching continues to be top-notch, and you're starting to see uh, some really good signs from this rotation, whether it's... Um, Senga, who's been hot and cold this season. Uh, Scherzer pitched extremely well in the series finale against the Phillies. Carlos Carrasco, after a very rough start to the season, seems to be turning the corner. And then last night, you had to love what you got from Justin Verlander. And Verlander's been fine. You know, the biggest knock on Verlander has been that he wasn't available for the first month of the season. He started the season injured. And it has taken him a little while to get up and running. But he seems to be there. And what he did last night, I thought, was incredibly impressive. I mean, he gives up the – first of all, it's a tough Toronto lineup, one of the better lineups in Major League Baseball. Uh, Verlander gives up the leadoff home run to George Springer. And then that's it. That's all he allowed. And that was – look, he had to wait out an hour and 40-minute rain delay. Both pitchers did, obviously. Chris Bassett, who – Uh, had his own adversity to deal with last night with his wife up in Toronto about to go into labor. But don't discount what Verlander did. And even though the Mets lost that game last night, you're now talking about a trip through the rotation of four consecutive, like, top-flight starts. And, you know, you look back at these recent series. You know, you lose two out of three in Chicago to the Cubs. That was frustrating. You lose two out of three in Colorado to the Rockies. That was frustrating. But to back up the three-game sweep of the Phillies on the backs of your pitching rotation with, yes, albeit a loss, but another standout pitching performance last night and a pitching performance by arguably the most important player on your team in Justin Verlander, it's a really, really good sign. And, you know, you even saw Verlander had to dig deep in that sixth inning with the uh, bases loaded and it's still a one nothing game. And Verlander, that was it. We, you knew it was it. It was his last inning. It was his last batter. The Blue Jays loaded the bases on n- nothing hit hard. And Verlander was able to dial it up and get out of that bases loaded jam by striking out the side in that sixth inning uh, to hand it over to the Mets' bullpen. Still one nothing. Unfortunately for the Mets, they weren't able to push anything across. And they finally did in this series a moment ago. Daniel Vogelback, an RBI double as Starling Marte scores from first base. So the Mets on the board in the bottom of the second inning, one to nothing, their first run of the series against the Toronto Blue Jays. And Mark Canna, who came into this series red hot, flies out to left field uh, right after Vogelback. So that's where they stand right now. And again, you got the Yanks and the Dodgers coming up at uh, 7.15 is the first pitch. But we've got coverage beginning here at 6.30 right after our show. Uh, that you are hopefully enjoying. Garrett Cole looking for his seventh win of the season. He is 6-0 and with a 2.93 ERA against Michael Grove for the Dodgers. The, the one thing for the Mets last night, the, the two things that jumped out at me, um, 
Well, first of all, the Mets lineup, it, it was it was another example of it. It's, it's just it's not a deep lineup. And you, you have even though you have names in the lineup, when the names, you know, aren't hitting, and how do you look at Francisco Lindor's season? I mean, even today, uh, or excuse me, even last night, you know, 0 for 4 with two more strikeouts, and the average is down to 216. He's been timely. You have to give him that. You know, when he's put the bat on the ball and put the ball in play, usually it leads to a run or two scoring. He's among the league leaders in runs batted in, but the production is just not there. You know, Brandon Nimmo continues to do a good job getting on base. Pete Alonso can drive in any and all. Um, but I saw this, at, you know, this kind of just shows where the Mets are. We're going to have Doug Glanville on in about uh, five minutes. He'll be on the call for the Yankees-Dodgers game today for ESPN. But the Mets' payroll is, what, $375 million? Most in Major League Baseball. Saw this advertisement today advertising, you know, the kids, Vientos and Beatty and Alvarez, all three of whom were in the lineup last night. And the, the, the advertisement is, come on out to see the kids. I mean, this is the beginning of June, and you spent $375 million on this team. Like, I understand, like, fans are always going to be excited to see prospects, especially homegrown prospects, come up and have an opportunity to flourish. But that's not what this season was supposed to be built on. You know, not when you signed Verlander for what you signed him for. Not when you extended Brandon Nimmo. And you know what? The other thing, when you talk about the Mets spending spree in the offseason, the other thing that I think they actually get credit for financially spending but didn't actually spend the money, I think they get credit for the Carlos Correa contracts. Because, yes, they did commit to pay him that money if he was healthy. He turned out not to be healthy. But when you're talking about the Mets offseason spending spree, I actually think subconsciously the contract that was offered but never signed by Carlos Correa is actually factored into that. And they obviously didn't spend that money because he's not on the team. He's on the Minnesota Twins. But for the amount of money they're spending to be promoting the kids, coming out to see the kids, that's not what a team that has aspirations of winning the World Series uh, should be advertising. So the teams that are spending the most in Major League Baseball right now, not necessarily seeing the results. Uh, we'll talk with Doug Glanville about that and get his thoughts on Yanks Dodgers uh, from Chavez Ravine today as we continue on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. We've got Yankees baseball coming up. Our coverage beginning at 6.30. Game two of the Yankees weekend series in Los Angeles against the Dodgers from Dodger Stadium. And former big league outfielder, longtime ESPN broadcaster Doug Glanville will be on the call with Mike Cousins tonight. And Doug, kind enough to give us a couple of minutes here this afternoon. Doug, how are things out in our picturesque Dodger Stadium? <laughs> Well, you got that right. It's uh, it's beautiful out here. Weather is ideal. Just a slight breeze, sunny. Uh, it's uh, incredible, typical Southern Cal weather, and uh, looks like a fairway on the grass. So everything's lined up right here. You know, I've never been there. It's one of the few stadiums I haven't been to. Uh, just watching it on TV as I was last night, I always get a sense of kind of going back in time when you see Dodger Stadium. It it, it really does look unbelievable on TV. Yeah, I mean that's the feel. I, I just remember playing and. One thing that was always cool is at the end of the game, the buses would park in center field, like outside the fence. And we would, you know, they'd open the doors up. And at the end, we'd walk across the grass in the outfield and you just take it all in. And you just appreciate the, the historic aspect of it, the Dodger history, 
and just the beauty of the park. They just did such a nice job in how the grounds crew handles it. And when you combine that with the great weather, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it certainly is. All right, let's let's get into this game tonight, Doug. Um, let, let, let's start with the Yankees. At 34-25, and 25, uh, obviously tough one last night, tough first inning for Luis Severino. Third place in what has been the best division in baseball so far. What do you make of this Yankees team about 60 games in? Yeah, we, we had a chance to talk to Aaron Boone before the game, and, and there's no question that you know they've had some health issues like many teams, and they're trying to get their pitching healthy, whether it's Rodon or you know, guys are coming back. So just to have the stability of a dependable rotation that's out there every fifth day, you know that is something they want to lean in. Their bullpen has been pretty strong, and you get back Donaldson, you get back Stanton, you, know, you have a lot of guys that have been not in there every day, and they've had to rely a lot on their depth. But even then, you look at where they were. You know, they were last place at one point or tied, and now they're, uh, you know, getting up in that division. So this is the best baseball they've played so far, and they're not even at full strength. So that is where the upside is. As uh, Boone told us, you know, if they can get healthy, they're going to be really tough to score on, you know, just tough to generate runs. And uh, with Bader back and, you know, the great defense, that will accentuate that point. You mentioned, Doug, they have been relying on their depth with all the injuries, but they've also been relying on their best player. And, you know, you look at Aaron Judge's season, he signs the big contract in the offseason, and we haven't always seen historically, you know, that go as well as it has gone. But he signs the contract, he has the security, and it seems like Judge is at least as good as he was last year after signing that contract. No question. And he's, you know, he's just – at that premium level and, and still at the age where he's making adjustments and transitioning from what is like, quote, the younger player to the experienced veteran leading by example, the captain, you know, all those elements now are coming together and he has not missed the beat. And, you know, Aaron Boone just talks about it. How just amazing he is about how not only producing the way he is, but how good he is in the clubhouse and his desire to win the leadership. You know, he, that was part of the reason, you know, he came back here. He probably could have gone anywhere, really, that could pay him. But he felt like he had more of unfinished business, things to take care of here. And the numbers speak for themselves. Just, you know, putting up the same kind of dominant numbers as a year ago and, and not missing a beat. And the other thing that strikes me, Doug, if you watch him day in and day out, he's, he's you know, you look at his size and obviously the home run numbers, especially last year, he's not just a home run hitter. I mean, this guy, defense – arm running the bases this guy is an all-around player and it'll take his pitches you know like a guy sometimes you get a power you're trying to expand the zone to hit the ball to the ballpark he has a lot of confidence in his teammates when he has to take his walks he'll get his walks and he knows that there's people and personnel around him that can contribute and get him home and and that's part of how he's like messed in as a as a teammate so yes the, a lot of the intangibles which are more of a focal point as you think about how dominant pitching has been and the specialization of pitching, you need to find other ways to contribute and win ball games. And he does the little things as well as the big things. Getting you set for Yankees Dodgers. Our coverage begins right here, 630 tonight with Doug Glanville. He'll be on the call with Mike Cousins from Dodgers Stadium. Uh, let's talk about the Dodgers, Doug. And it was kind of a different offseason for them. We're used to seeing them make all these, you know, splashy moves and bringing in former MVPs, whether a Mookie Betts or a Freddie Freeman. You know, didn't add any mega stars, but here they are. They're, they're tied for first in the NL West. 
how? But this has been like a decade for this team doing this. How, how have they been able to keep it up at this level? Well, big move. Uh, you talk about the splashes. One big splash was Andrew Friedman in the front office, and this is uh, someone who had a experience with the Tampa Bay Rays. So he understood efficiency and budgets and making the most from little. And now he's making the most from most, having a lot of options financially. And when you acquire Betts and Freeman, you know you don't need to keep making those moves. Those are those are lifelong legacy level players that you can still just build around. So whether it's young guys like Vargas, whether it's you know experienced guys that you add like Rojas, you can plug and play with so many different players at, at the Dodger level, and they know how to implement these guys. Dave Roberts has had a very successful managerial career. So in some ways, because they didn't make those moves, there was a little bit like, oh well, Dodgers are kind of going to sink a little bit towards the middle. The Padres made all these moves, and they beat them in the postseason last year. And, and what's happened has been the exact opposite. They're flying a, quite a bit under the radar for a team with all this advantage and, and playing good baseball. And this is without the pitching that they need. The Arias has been hurt. Uh, May went down. And, you know, they're just reloading with a lot of young arms like Bobby Miller and trying to find their way that way. But, you know, look, rest assured, though, if the trade deadline comes along, they don't have certain pieces. They have the ability to make moves if they need to. You mentioned the Padres, and perhaps this is your answer to that, but positive or negative, Doug, what would you say is your biggest surprise this MLB season so far? Well, you know, if you talk about the Padres, yeah, it is the quicksand that they seem to be in. They're kind of treading, uh, treading water and, and not getting any rhythm. Tatis Jr. has not been quite the Tatis. I mean, it was a big layoff for certainly and self-imposed. Uh, and, and the fact that you have those four megastars, which you pretty much can roll out anybody at any order, right? Bogart, Soto, and Machado. Machado's been out a little. He's back now. Uh, they just haven't gotten any rhythm, and, and they're not doing all the things you kind of expected them to do. On top of that, just stay in the division. Arizona Diamondbacks, team that's showing that some of these new rules to go first to third, the base stealing, all the ways they put pressure on teams in ways that are more small ball and it's, and, and they're playing good defense. That has been an interesting story just to watch them right there with the Dodgers playing just some great baseball. So NL West has a lot of surprising storylines. Overall, and, and Doug, you were a guy in your career who put the bat on the ball, who used his legs, had some speed. Um, you know, when you talk about the rule changes this year, obviously the pitch clock is the thing that has gotten the most attention. Uh, but putting that a little bit to the side, j just you know, the the increased size of the bases, the the lack of a shift, uh, the the increase in stolen bases. How how do you see those rule changes having enhanced the game so far? It's been a big difference. The clock certainly is, is number one. But I also look at the shift. It's now you have left-handed hitters like Anthony Rizzo's of the world where you shift over the second baseman to cover that hole on the first base near first base. What that's done is open up a gigantic hole between the second baseman and second base. And you're seeing some base hits, some choppers go through first to third. The teams that steal bases that are running themselves into scoring position now, all of a sudden, those choppers and base hits that get through are runs. And some teams like the Diamondbacks or teams that, that are using that athleticism are able to take advantage of it. First to thirds has become a play again. Second to home, moving the ball over on the right side. So all that has uh, come together in a way that has elevated the running game. And there's no doubt that the league, one thing we've learned about all the data and analytics and, and the ability to stay prepared with research is that whatever rules you bring in, 
teams will figure out some way to counteract eventually, right? They'll, okay, the stolen base rate early in the season was like 80%. It was higher than that, 85. And now it's kind of slipping into 77. So teams are kind of figuring out strategies to slow it down, but it's still a weapon. And, and the fact that you're getting more running athleticism, that, that was the intent of those rules. And the clock has just got the rhythm moving very well. There's, there's a tempo now to baseball that hadn't been there for a while. Doug, lastly, I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, back to the Yankees. They haven't been to the World Series or won the World Series since 2009. Um, do you see them as a contender to come out of the American League now, or do they have some holes that they need to fill to get to that level? They're definitely a contender, and um, they would sure like to fill holes. A lot of those holes are filled by just being healthy. If you have Rodon at his best and healthy, you know you have Severino and all these guys playing their best on the pitching side, Cole, then you have a shot as anyone. You have a fan, you know, that's a lot of depth, and they have a whole lot of arms in the bullpen that can shut you down with specializing, uh, whether sinker ballers and guys that they come in for certain situations. So they're situationally set up well on the pitching side. Now is Sam healthy? Is Donaldson healthy? Is you know these kinds of questions? Uh, but I think the personnel is there, you know, for them to be able to win. And there's not a lot of teams you say, oh, that's just it. That's the dominant team. That's the best team in baseball. They're just going to run people over. Every team has a little hiccup in there, which uh, leaves it open. I mean, even the Rays, who have done exceptionally well, uh, you know, you don't know how that's going to play out in September, in, in October. So, I I think the Yankees are in a good shape and have a lot of talent. They just have to get healthy and stay healthy. Well, Doug, I appreciate the time. Uh, great stuff, and have a great call tonight. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, bud. Doug Glanville from Dodger Stadium on the call tonight with Mike Cousins. Right after us, 6.30, our coverage begins. Yankees-Dodgers game two of their three-game weekend series from Dodger Stadium. Yanks lost last night by a score of 8-4. to four. Uh Tough first inning for Luis Severino as he was really knocked around. Not only six runs and eight hits, but hard hits and even some some loud outs off the bats of the Dodgers. You saw Greg Allen in center field for the Yankees running all over the vast, expansive outfield of Dodger Stadium defensively. Speaking of Allen, if you were watching that game, you, you saw Aaron Boone, the Yankees training staff, check on him a couple of times during an at-bat early in the game. Allen waving off the medical attention. Look, Greg Allen's a guy, if you remember, a couple of years ago uh, came to the Yankees and really was a really nice stopgap outfielder during a time when they were really struggling. Uh, he moved on before the end of that season. Yankees picked him up about a couple of weeks ago from the Red Sox and have plugged him in, and he's been their center fielder now with Harrison Bader on the injured list. So this is his opportunity, and... Unfortunately for Greg Allen, the Yankees just placed him on the 10-day injured list. He has a right hip flexor strain. He obviously was trying to play through that last night. So really tough break for a guy who's trying to solidify his spot in the major leagues. They also placed Ryan Weber on the 15-day injured list. He's got a right forearm strain. So before tonight's game, the Yankees calling back up left-handed pitcher Nick Ramirez and Oswaldo Cabrera is back from Scranton, rejoining the Yankees before their game tonight against the L.A. Dodgers. How much of a contender are the Yankees in the American League and in Major League Baseball? They certainly do have some holes to fill. And why $250 million doesn't buy you what it once did. That's coming up here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe 
on 98.7 ESPN. Pat O'Keefe with you here on 98.7 ESPN New York. Uh, Yankees are coming up uh, about an hour from now is when our coverage begins from Dodger Stadium. Thanks to Doug Glanville for hopping on. Doug Glanville, by the way, native of uh, Teaneck, New Jersey. Went to Teaneck High School uh, and then went on to play at the University of Pennsylvania before enjoying an eight-year Major League Baseball career where he batted 277 as an outfielder. Uh, so that's coming your way after uh, we wrap up here about an hour from now. Wanted to make this point, and uh, sorry, I, I over-exaggerated uh, the Mets' payroll. I was saying it was $375 million this season. It is actually only a paltry $345 million. But the the larger point remains, and... I mean, God, you look at you look at the list of payrolls in baseball and, you know, the Yankees facing the Dodgers this weekend certainly reminds you of this. The Mets are lapping the field. They're at 345. The Yankees have the second highest payroll at 277. And then it drops to the Padres at 247 million dollars. The Phillies at 244. And then the Dodgers round out the top five, 226 million dollars. Of those five teams, Mets, Yankees, Padres, Phillies, and Dodgers, the only one, and I've got to be honest, the only one that I see as a contender to uh, to win the World Series is the Dodgers, um, and they have the fifth highest of those five teams. But you look at the Mets, and you know you could. If I say what holes do the Mets have right now, obviously they don't have a to uh, any depth in their lineup whatsoever. Uh, their bullpen, which has been okay, can obviously use significant improvements. You could say the same thing about the Yankees. The Yankees, I think, actually have more holes than the Mets do because a week ago I would have also listed the Mets' starting rotation as a concern, and you're always going to have a little bit of a concern with the likes of Verlander and Scherzer at their advanced ages at the top of your rotation. But for now, especially during this trip through the rotation, the Mets pitching has been fantastic. The Yankees, you can add starting pitching as a concern. The only guy that you can rely on right now, start in, start out, seems to be Garrett Cole. And even he's leveled off a little bit. Severino had two very good starts coming off the injured list to begin his season, but he got wrapped around last night. Nestor Cortez still hasn't approached the level he was out last year. Domingo Herman and Clark Schmidt. Yankees also, I mean, look, how many games have we looked at the Yankees lineup and it's either a Willie Calhoun or a Frenchie Cordero uh, or even a Harrison Bader as your cleanup hitter or your number three hitter in a lineup. I mean, that doesn't scream World Series contender to me. And then on top of all of that, the Yankees, they don't have a closer. Who is the Yankees' closer right now? I mean, they still run out Clay Holmes more than anyone else, but for $277 million and the second-highest payroll in all of baseball, that is certainly a lot of holes. But worse than the Yankees are the Padres because they're an absolute mess. In fact, they're not even above 500 right now. Um, the Phillies are even worse than the Padres after their run to the World Series last season. They have a 439 winning percentage. And then you have the Dodgers who just continue to plug along. And it was funny because, you know, at a certain point, and I asked Doug the question with the Dodgers, it was a different offseason because they didn't make the, the splashy offseason acquisition by bringing in a megastar. I guess there's only so many megastars you could bring in. You know, when in the last couple of offseasons, you had Mookie Betts, former MVP, you had Freddie Freeman last year, recent MVP with the Atlanta Braves. You know, at a certain point, I guess you don't need to bring in a megastar every single offseason. 
the Padres are certainly finding that out right now because they have four quote-unquote megastars. The difference between the Padres and a team like the Dodgers, the Padres' megastars outside of Xander Bogarts really haven't accomplished anything in baseball. I mean, yeah, Machado's a guy who's always had talent and put up big numbers. Fernando Tatis Jr. obviously has a ton of talent and has put up big numbers. I Actually, let me be fair to Juan Soto. He was a very young player could have been the World Series MVP in 2019 with the Washington Nationals, but he's really struggled since coming to San Diego. And then the guy who has the, the best resume of everyone is probably the fourth most heralded uh, megastar on that Padres team, and that's Xander Bogarts. And that certainly hasn't hasn't worked out. But the point of this is, you know, $200 million, $250 million doesn't nearly buy what it used to in Major League Baseball. I mean, you look down the list and – for example, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and they're ranked 21st in the league in payroll right now, $115 million. $115 million. They have spent exactly a third the amount of money that the Mets have spent on their roster, and there they are tied for first place and top the uh, National League West in a flat-footed tie with the L.A. Dodgers. So the Yankees and Mets, um, how much – higher are they willing to go how much higher are they able to go I mean you you figure the Mets are willing to go higher than the Yankees are given the current climate with the ownership situations of both teams but how much is enough I mean the Mets have gone 75 million higher than pretty much everyone else and what has it gotten them two games above 500 and a one nothing lead here in the bottom of the fourth inning over the Toronto Blue Jays all right let's get back to the phones 1-800-919-3776 Richard in Manhattan what's up Richard Hi, Pat. Yeah, Cole had, has 12 starts, seven good ones, five bad ones. He was great his first six. Great. But, yeah, but his last six, only one good start. In the, so he's given up 11 runs in the last 10 innings, I think, or 10 runs in the last 11 innings, something like that. He, he's been getting crushed lately. Anyway, Pat, I'm going to be very specific here. I can't listen to somebody tell me something that I know more than they know and they're just plugging it into a computer. Let's examine the difference between judge batting second and judge batting third. Now, if judge bats second, he will get up more times during the course of a year, but not as many as you think. If he bats second instead of third and plays 145 games, he would each, each notch you move up, you get one-ninth the better chance of, of getting more advances, uh, more at-bats. So, in other words, the fact that he bats second instead of third, one-ninth of 145 games, 16 would be the average. So if he played 145 games and batted second instead of third, he'd be on the average getting up 16 more at-bats a year. So that's 16 plus 2 or minus 2. So it can be 14, it can be 18. All right, the big difference is batting second instead of fourth. Then you're doubling that, and yes. then it's 32. Okay, so we've established that. So we say if he bats second instead of third, he will get up about 15, 17, 18, 14 more yeah. times. Uh, okay, we've established that. Yep. That's on the good side for batting second. Yep. Now, here's my contention on the bad side. On the bad side, if he bats third instead of second in the first inning, now the first inning alone – he will have a chance to get up with two men on base, correct? If you're batting third instead of second. You can't get up with two men right. on base if you're batting. Okay? Plus, in the first inning, he has a chance of getting 
up with two men on base. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. He has a better chance of getting up with one man on base. Obviously, if you get up, if you're batting second, if the first guy gets out, you have no chance of batting with a man on base. But if you're batting third, there's a chance that the second guy gets on base. So there are two things there. If you're batting third, only in the first inning. Now, that's only 25% of the game, obviously, or maybe uh, 22% because he can get up either four or five times in a game. But that's a big chunk of consideration. Okay, so put that on the table for favorable batting third. You have a better chance of getting up with two men on base. Well, you have have the only chance of getting up with two men on base. And you have a better chance of getting a man on base. Plus, throughout the rest of the game now, when you're batting third – you're batting behind the number one and number two hitters. Well, that's Whereas what it comes down to for second, me. if you're batting second the rest of the game, Pat, you're, you're always going to be behind the, hitter hitter be behind the yes. number nine and number yes. one hitter. Richard, I'm with you, by the way. I think he should be batting third. And I, I don't understand um, the analytics that lead people to believe throughout baseball that the best hitter should be batting second. But for me, it's more than just – And I haven't done the deep dive of analysis that you just laid out for us, and we appreciate that. But for me, it's not just, hey, when you were growing up, the best hitter always hit third, whether it was Don Mattingly or whether it was Keith Hernandez, the contact hitter. It it is common sense, and I think that's the point you were trying to get to is you have more opportunities to have more table setters on base in front of you. And I know people in the analytics community hear a statement like that and think it's ill-informed, but... I'm sorry, as somebody who's been watching baseball closely for 35 years and, you know, has made this my life's work and profession, it just, it's common sense. I mean, I I think I summed up, I love Rich, I think I summed it up a little, you know, without the uh, mathematical lesson. But seriously, you, you, you want table setters, guys to get on base, that's still important, right? Analytics is based not on batting average. It's based on on on-base percentage. And I think that's where the Yankees kind of went off track last year. If you go back to the ALCS last year against the Astros, that four-game sweep, I think the biggest thing or things missing for the Yankees last season were Andrew Benatendi and DJ LeMahieu. Those are the two best contact hitters that the Yankees had last year. And if you could have had LeMahieu, but he wasn't healthy, leading off, and Ben Attendi, but he wasn't healthy, batting second, and then you have Judge, and then you have Stanton, and then you have your power hitters, your guys that can drive in runs, Glaber Torres coming up after them. That's how you construct a lineup. And I understand last year as you know we got into the home run chase and Aaron Judge was hitting leadoff a lot, the Yankees were trying to maximize his at-bats. That part of it I got, okay? It was an historic chase. They wanted to give him every opportunity they could to break the record, and he broke the record as a leadoff hitter in Texas. So it worked. He got a handful of extra at-bats because of that. But I I feel that that was specifically because of the home run chase. I don't like him batting second. And I know he's also – here's the thing. You're going to tell me, if if you're in favor of Judge batting second, you're going to tell me he's there – because he is the best on the team at getting on base. He's the best on the team at everything. He's the best contact hitter. He's the best power hitter. Um, he's the best fielder. He's the best base runner. He's not the fastest, but he's the best base runner. The guy's the best player. So, of course, he's going to be the best at getting on base. But if he's getting on base, what good does it do you if guys behind him aren't as proficient at driving him in as he is at driving people in? 
This is the same thing with the Mets. That's why Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor, this is how they drive in so many runs because Brandon Nimmo's on base all the time. The Yankees don't have that in front of Judge, and they're trying to manufacture it with Judge by wedging him into the number two hole. Judge is a classic number three hitter, especially since in the last couple of years he has significantly cut down on his strikeouts. He's the best contact hitter on the team. He's the best everything on the team. But I do agree with Richard, even though I think we're coming at it from different angles in terms of our explanation. I don't think Judge should be batting second either. I think he should be batting third. Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. Cautioned earlier, Yankees played well, uh, hit well against Seattle for sure, played well against San Diego, put a nice little four-game winning streak together. Uh, Tough loss to finish that series in Seattle after you score 10 runs in three straight games. You get shut out in 10 innings. Okay, blip on the radar perhaps, but then you got to, you know, you always got to be looking forward. I'm not saying that the Yankees aren't, but, you know, uh, the, the Yankee fan needs to, to realize that what the Yankees have done at 34 and 25, and this is why I think they have a lot of work to do at 34 and 25 in a very tough division. Um, they have done a, a really, really good job at beating up on the poorest teams in major league baseball, specifically the Reds, specifically the A's. I mean, that's six and zero right there. Um, the Phillies, they caught them early in the season when they weren't playing well. They're still not playing well, in fact. And then the other thing the Yankees have done, which I think has been the most impressive this year, is they've played the the Rays dead even. In fact, the Yankees have been better than the Rays in their head-to-head matchups. They've given two games away against Tampa Bay that they had in their grasp and weren't able to close out. So those three factors have led to the Yankees being 34-25. and 25, But they got a long way to go, you know? And this is why the return of Josh Donaldson and Giancarlo Stanton, and specifically Donaldson, because I don't think there's any Yankee fan that um, questions that the return of Stanton to the lineup is a is a good thing. Of course it is. It's a great thing. Stanton always hits. Ever since he's put on the Yankee uniform, Stanton has always hit. And except for that first postseason in New York, 2018 when they lost in four games to the Red Sox, Stanton has always hit in the postseason. You know, 2019, he was out for the entire year. He came back against the Astros, he's mashing the ball, and then he's gone again. And that was basically the end of the Yankees' season as they lost that series in six games. 2020, the COVID year where they're playing on the neutral fields in front of no fans, Stanton was unbelievable in the postseason. You know, 2021, nobody was good, although Stanton did actually hit a ball that, well, at least one person thought was a home run in the uh, loss at Fenway Park. And then last year, very good in the postseason again. He's always produced when he's been healthy. And he's always produced in the regular season when he's been healthy, especially that first year. You know, people forget Stanton's first year in 2018. Judge was coming off his Rookie of the Year campaign and runner-up for MVP in 2017 when they gave it to Altuve. And then Judge in the middle of the 2018 season, and the Yanks were playing really well. They were almost neck-and-neck with the Red Sox. And uh, Judge broke his hand, got hit by a pitch against the Royals and missed about a month, month and a half. And it was Stanton who really carried the Yankees' offense while Judge was out and allowed them to hold their spot. And then they ended up getting matched up in the playoffs with the Red Sox. And the Red Sox were terrific that year, and Stanton did not play well in the postseason. But it was a four-game series also. He did come up in the last inning of Game 4 
when the Yankees were trying to mount a comeback against Craig Kimbrell, who couldn't find the mound that night, or couldn't find the plate that night. He was standing on the mound. Couldn't find the plate that night. And uh, with the runners on first and third and one out, he struck out. And it was an unproductive at-bat, and the Yankees ended up losing that game. Uh, but for the most part, Stanton has, not for the most part, when Stanton's been healthy, he's produced. Josh Donaldson is the one who the Yankees need. The Yankees need his production now because, look, everybody fell in love with us. Waldo Cabrera last year, he's athletic. He could play multiple positions. He got some big hits, has a nice, sweet left-handed stroke when it's working. But he was given a lot of opportunity this year, and he has not produced. He has been inept offensively. So if that's the other option to Donaldson, then you're going to want Donaldson to succeed. Cabrera, by the way, if you didn't hear me mention it earlier, has been recalled because Greg Allen went to the injured list with a left hip strain. Uh, let's go back to the phones and bring in Calvin in Washington Heights. Calvin, what's going on today? Hey, Pat, I'm listening to you. Good show, by the way. I'm not. I'm just a baseball fan, and I'm, I would like to say this. I, um, I'm not a Yankee fan, but Juan Soto and the San Diego Padres, I know that he hasn't done much in San Diego last season. That was his only down season in all his major leagues so far. But this season looks like he's getting super hot lately, especially from bringing his average from like 210 or 215 at the beginning of the year to now 268. The difference from that team is that their, their bats look like it's going to be very reliable. When I look at the Yankees lineup, it's like um, where the offense could come when it comes to clunch, crunch time, like clutch time in the playoff, where, where, where the offense would possibly happen because this is what ha happened in the last postseason is like nothing happens, no runs. They're just hoping on the, on the, on that one home run, no, nothing on the base path, no hit and run. And, and that's the issue that I, that I see um, that that's coming for this, for the Yankees and, and, and their playoff runs um, with San Diego. Like I said, Juan Soto, um, with 2021 got Ralph for MVP, I believe they're going to be fine because he could carry that team, and he's a clutch player. I also shared with the caller, with the guy that um, put me on hold, um, Jason Dominguez. I know the Yankees are taking care of him, but bring him up. Why are you afraid to bring him up? I know he's young. People say, oh, he's too young. Julio Rodriguez was young. He produced. Juan Soto was 19, driving the bus for the Nationals and won the World Series. Um, Vladimir Guerrero was young. All these players, were brought, um, even the pitcher for today for the Marlins is 20 years old, and it's going to give them their third win of the season now, like or if he, if they get the win today. Don't be afraid. Bring this guy up. See what he could give you. Cabrera didn't give you anything. Everybody throwing a left field. Greg Allen is hurt. He did great in spring training, Dominguez. And, by the way, he was actually a higher talented prospect than all the players I just mentioned. He, yep. he would look at it as a higher talent than Machado, than Soto, than Guerrero, than all these great players, he was ranked higher. Why do the Yankees don't give him a chance? Well, they still might, Calvin, and thanks for the call. And that's something that the Yankees historically haven't done, and it's something that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, the Yankees have always veered more towards veteran presence on their roster in their lineup than young homegrown talent. And I, Look, there's been a, a lot of instances of players you hear about in the minors and you're, you're wondering why have they not been brought up? And by the time they do get brought up to the majors, they're a disappointment. And I don't know what the reason is. Were they not as good as the Yankees thought originally? Um, did they lose their confidence by having to toil in the minor leagues for an extra half a year or an extra season? I don't know. I think that could be part of it. You know, Gary Sanchez is probably the last guy 
before Dominguez, who was in that situation. The Yankees signed Sanchez, I think, when he was 16 years old. And you heard about him for five years. He was going to be the future. He was this prospect they paid millions of dollars to as a 16-year-old prospect, and he's working his way up the system. And by the time he's 19 or 20 years old, he's going to come up. And guess what? Gary Sanchez did come up, and he was unbelievable. You know, 2016, when he came up, and I know the Yankees were – they weren't out of the pennant race, but they didn't make the playoffs that year. They were on the periphery of the pennant race. So it's not like he was playing in, you know, high leverage games. But Gary Sanchez came up in 2016 and basically ended Brian McCann's time as the Yankee catcher. And Sanchez set all kinds of records. I mean, he was he was unbelievable when he came up in 2016. He played 53 games. And he had 20 home runs and drove in 42 RBIs. He played 53 games, and he was the runner-up for the uh, he was the runner-up for the Rookie of the Year award. And then in 2017, 33 homers and 90 RBIs. Uh, was injured in 2018, played half a season. In 2019, his last really good season, 34 homers and 77 RBIs. So like he was the last guy who, and he 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 even had to wait till he was 22 years old before making his major league debut so he was in the minors for six years after the Yankees signed him the question I would ask the Yankees to ask themselves if this continues is this is Jason Dominguez or anybody else they're considering bringing up is he a better option than who we have right now and on that note let's look at the Yankee lineup tonight you have Torres leading off Judge is batting second and right sorry Richard from Manhattan Rizzo's batting third at first. Josh Donaldson is cleaning up and the DH today, so it's an off day for Stanton after coming back last night. LeMahieu is batting fifth at third. Jake Bowers is batting sixth and left. IKF is batting seventh and center. Trevino's behind the plate, batting eighth, and Anthony Volpe is back down to the ninth spot in the order uh, as the shortstop with Garrett Cole on the mound. You give good lineup. Thank you. The question you have to ask is do they have a better option i mean look the answer's got to be yes at some point right at some point when you have an outfield a starting outfield tonight now the guy in right field's pretty good all right so let's just talk about left field and center field jake bowers and isaiah kiner falefa that's your starting you know outfield nationally televised game national radio broadcast the two most iconic franchises and Major League Baseball history, East Coast, West Coast. This is a huge matchup tonight. It's on Fox. We got it here on ESPN Radio. And you're going out there with Bowers and IKF in left field and center field. By the way, further proving my point that you need Donaldson to produce. I would love for them to switch Judge and Rizzo, by the way. I don't know why they don't switch Judge and Rizzo. Even that little tweak. You know, LeMahieu's... A problem. Just his production is a problem. You know, LeMahieu's not the same player. Now, is he on the other side of his best days? He might be. He might be. He wasn't he wasn't effective last year, and you thought maybe it was because of the the injury, which kept him out of the playoffs, which was a big loss. But he hasn't hit. He hasn't hit this year. You know, LeMahieu is the best bat on ball guy on this team. When right. But I just don't know if he's ever going to be at that level again. You know, the Yankees are better when LeMahieu leads off, and then you can either go with Torres or Rizzo batting second. I would offer Rizzo because I like the lefty in that spot. And then you come with Judge and Stanton, you come with your big boys. And then you have, you know, Glaber Torres can bat fifth. 
Uh, if Bader comes back, you know, he's he's your sixth hitter. Or Donaldson, if he can give you something, he's your sixth hitter. And then the other part of the equation, and this is further down the line when everybody gets back, um, if the Yankees don't make any massive changes to their lineup, you've got to find a way to get Stanton into the outfield because he can't be clogging up the DH spot because all of the Yankees' production outside of Judge and Stanton, all of their offensive production comes from the infield. And it's Rizzo, it's LeMahieu, it's Donaldson, um, and it's Glaber Torres. And then, of course, you have to have Anthony Volpe or whoever at shortstop, but it's Volpe. But you can't play LeMahieu and Torres and Rizzo and Donaldson unless you have Stanton in the outfield. Or on a night like tonight, he's taking the day off. But you assume that when the playoffs come around, Stanton will be in the lineup if he's healthy. <laughs> um, we'll get you set for Yanks Dodgers and check in on the Mets. Another sterling pitching performance for them at City Field, but it's getting a little dicey in the sixth inning as we continue on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. Holding on to a one nothing lead in the top of the sixth inning, but the Blue Jays have two runners on and nobody out. Tyler McGill at 102 pitches as he pitches to Whit Merrifield. Mets leading one to nothing. Last night, Verlander gave up just the one run, the leadoff home run over six innings, pitching out of a bases-loaded jam with a strikeout on his final pitch of the night. So, a terrific performance last night for Justin Verlander. Unfortunately for him, the Mets couldn't get anything across in the series opener against the Blue Jays. And then in the three-game sweep against the Phillies, the Mets pitching staff holding Philadelphia to a total of three runs in those three games. So McGill gets one out in the sixth, and Buck Showalter makes the walk to the mound to take him out. So Tyler McGill's day is done. Five and a third innings, no runs allowed so far, and two runners on base. It was also at City Field Mets Hall of Fame induction day. There are two broadcasters, Gary Cohen and Howie Rose, among the four-member class inducted Howard Johnson and Al Leiter. And uh, we have a little bit of Leiter's speech at City Field earlier today. To Steve and Alex Cohen. Thank you for today. As a Met fan, I appreciate you bringing back Mets history in a fervent way. Last year's old-timers game was not only special for the guys that were participating, but for many Mets fans that are very proud of our history. Thank you. Your love for this team doesn't go unnoticed, and it is very appreciated. For the team, but it's also good business. And Steve Cohen has done a terrific job in his ownership of this team you know, you, you talk about the confidence that he gives to the fans and the money that he spends on the roster and how that makes you feel as a fan, and that's all great. And Yankee fans know that they have had that feeling up until the last five years, but the entire time that George Steinbrenner was alive and running the team, to know that the owner of your team would spare no expense, whether or not the decisions were always sound and the right decisions, just to know that money wasn't going to be the sticking point between trying to improve the team and not, it just gives you such a, a confidence as a fan. He's done that, but he has also really tapped into Mets history and the fans do love that. And, you know, the retiring of Keith Hernandez is number and the Mets old timers day as Al Leiter said, and now this induction ceremony for Mets hall of fame growing, um, growing up in New York and going to, 
my dad used to take my brother and me to Old Timers Day at Yankee Stadium every year. And for, for years and years, the Yankees were the only team that did that each and every year. And it was special just seeing, you know, guys on the field that you had heard of but never necessarily seen play. And, you know, I'm old enough that when I was in the 80s going to Old Timers Day, they still had Mickey Mantle and they still had Joe DiMaggio. And uh, obviously Whitey Ford went for a very, very long time until he passed away just a couple of years ago. But, it, you know, it's special for the fans, even fans that didn't see those guys play. I mean, there's young fans now that never saw the 86 guys. They never they don't know Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling as anything but broadcasters on SNY. They don't know that it was a. They, they were two of the cornerstones of that World Series championship team in 1986. So Steve Cohen has done a, a really good job at bringing back that history. Um, it's good business. And Steve Cohen is a, a very, very good businessman. We, we know that. Uh, I believe we have something also from, from Gary Cohen, the, the TV voice of the Mets, on his induction. You know, my parents always told me that I should do whatever I wanted. Um, but I think that she felt as though this was a rather flighty pursuit. Um, she told me that I should go into the junior executive program at Macy's. <laughs> That's a literal quote. Well, that would have worked. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, my, my first encounter doing baseball every day was in 1986 when I was in Durham. I didn't know if I was going to like it. I was more of a basketball guy, and mm. I, I didn't know if filling 1,200 innings by myself was going to be something that I could even do if I could have the creativity and, and the, the storytelling ability to do that and it took about three weeks to a month that first season before I really felt as though hey this is this is something that I really like I think I'm going in this direction well he's also uh, made up along with Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling just a terrific broadcasting trio in the booth for SNY and it is special and I said this earlier and I'll, I'll repeat it for, for Mets fans to have two broadcasters the caliber of Gary Cohen on TV, Howie Rose on the radio, but both local guys. You know, they grew up in Queens. They grew up rooting for the teams. Their knowledge of the team goes back, you know, decades and decades and decades and is as sound as anybody's knowledge of this franchise and, and, and the love that they have for that franchise. And then to have two guys with that skill level, that broadcasting skill level, to be able to – you know, paint the picture of this team and tell their stories. And they've gotten better over the years. Uh, there's no question about that. It is pretty special. And Mets fans are certainly fortunate to have that. So the other member of the uh, Hall of Fame class, be besides the um, besides Al Leiter and Gary and Howie Rose, uh, Howard Johnson as well. And will it lead to a Mets win? Well, uh, Raley is out of the bullpen with two outs now in the top of the sixth inning. Still a one-run game as the Mets look for what would be their fourth win in their last five games. Yeah, Yankees, again, coming up at uh, 6.30. Our coverage begins from Dodger Stadium. Garrett Cole on the mound for the Yanks against uh, Michael uh, against Michael Grove. Um, Josh Donaldson, his second game back. He's DHing tonight. John Carlos Stanton, his second game back, and he's not playing. And I'm looking at the reaction on Twitter already, and Yankee fans are up in arms. Look, this is how the Yankees do it, and – if you want to continue to argue about the way that the Yankees handle um, injuries, especially with guys that are injury-prone, like uh, John Carlos Stanton, and the excess of rest, then you're, you're just going to be banging your head against the wall you know, every single time this happens. And Lindor, that's a one-hopper that was hit hard, but he should have had it, trickle into shallow left field 
and the tying run comes around to score, they'll probably probably rule it a hit. But if you're a top-flight shortstop, that's a play that you have to make. You have to at least keep it in the infield, and he did neither. Uh, so now the Blue Jays have first and second with two outs. That would have ended the inning. Boy, that's a play you got to make right there. And now it's a tie game with first and second and still two outs between the Mets and the Blue Jays. Um, but you know this is how the Yankees handle injuries. Back to Stanton not playing tonight. And, and Yankee fans are not happy because they think that he was out for a month and a half and he comes back and he plays one game and he hits a home run and now he's not playing today. This is how the Yankees handle things. Do you agree with it? Not necessarily, but this is this is how they handle things. And the, the more interesting thing is going to happen you know, tomorrow. Well, I'll probably tell you what happened tomorrow. Tomorrow, Donaldson probably gets a day off. The interesting thing will happen when Donaldson and Stanton and Rizzo and LeMayhew and, and Gleyber Torres are all ready to play. What, is, what does Aaron Boone do with the lineup? And that's really frustrating, too, because the Yankees don't have a great lineup and they don't have a lot of depth, but they all of their depth seems to be concentrated in the infield positions. And that's not ideal because then you're either going to be forcing somebody like Stanton into the outfield more than you want to to get another bat in your lineup, or you're going to be keeping one of your five more most productive bats on the team on the bench for the sake of your defense. So it's frustrating no matter which way you look at it. As Rayleigh gets out of the inning, heading to the bottom of the sixth, Mets and the uh, Blue Jays are tied at one. Uh, back to uh, share some thoughts on a key injury for the New York Knicks and what that could mean for next season here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. You know, just hearing those promos of Aaron Rodgers talking about leading the Jets to a Super Bowl or at least taking a whack at it and, you know, the fact that we're we're talking about this in in realistic tones. and, and, and We heard... Um, Bill Barnwell, who does a great job covering the NFL for ESPN, he was a guest on Greeny, obviously talking about Rodgers and obviously talking about the Jets here on ESPN Radio. Um, Barnwell is of the opinion that the trade for Aaron Rodgers was not necessarily in the best interest of the Jets. What matters is not just who you added, but what the price was. The Jets were the only real suitors. Aaron Rodgers came out and said, hey, I want to play for the Jets. This was a one-team negotiation. And when you look at what the Jets paid for Aaron Rodgers as part of that deal, it's staggering. They're paying Aaron Rodgers more than any quarterback in the history of football, which, are, okay, that's fine. I can leave that aside. They had to sign Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb. Aaron's friends had to come with him to New York. And I'm not sure about those deals, but, okay, that's no big deal. But you give up a two this year, a swap of first-round picks this year, and mostly likely, uh, unless Aaron Rodgers doesn't play 11 games, in which case this is a big bust anyway, if he plays 11 or more games next year in terms of snaps, they give up a first-rounder next year as well. And so I think, given the other option, Aaron Rodgers is better than Derek Carr. He's going to give you a better chance of winning a Super Bowl than Derek Carr, no question. But it's not Aaron Rodgers versus Derek Carr. It's Aaron Rodgers versus Derek Carr, $20 more million a year to sign on players, not having Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb, and having a two this year, not swapping those first-round picks this year, and having a first-round pick next year. And when you have that conversation, that's why I'm concerned. Yeah, but for an analytics guy like Bill Barnwell, and most much of his reporting is analytics-based, and again, he does a really good job with it. He's one of my favorite reads on ESPN.com each and every week. The, the fact that you know Aaron Rodgers is here and we are talking about the Jets as a Super Bowl contender, that's why the Jets paid the premium price. That's why you pay a premium price for a premium player. And then the other part of the equation that he didn't bring up there, and this is why I disagree with his take, is what is happening now 
You know, Rodgers is now the face of the franchise. He was, and you, you may laugh and think these are little things, but Rodgers going to the Garden during the Rangers playoff games and the Knicks playoff games and bonding with his teammates and instantly, instantly becoming the face of this Jets franchise. When was the last time being a Jet was cool? Being a Jet is now cool. He's got his teammates with him on the offensive side of the ball, not just his old friends that he brought with him from Green Bay, but he's hanging out with Sauce Gardner. He's hanging out with Jessica Alba. These are all things that enhance um, you know, the, the, the feel of the franchise. And that's one part of it. More important than that is the fact that he has been in that building ever since then. Okay? What you did by paying a little bit more than you probably needed to as the only suitor for Aaron Rodgers is you got it done and you're able to move on. Okay? He is – what is the time he is spending now with his teammates, with his receivers, with his coaches in that building in Florham Park? What is that worth? You didn't factor that in when you said that the Jets overpaid. I think that it's a move that you make 10 times out of 10, and I couldn't be more excited to see where it leads this coming season. Um, and every time I hear those promos of Rodgers talking and just knowing that he is the face of this franchise right now, it's very exciting. So I disagree with Barnwell on that point that the Jets overpaid. They, you know, Not that they didn't have any other options. This was the best option. This was the only option. This was the only option that puts them in the conversation as a Super Bowl contender. All right, real quick. The uh, basketball news earlier today, uh, Julius Randle underwent successful surgery on his left ankle. According to the Knicks, he will resume basketball activities later this summer. That's all they said on the matter. Uh, It sounds like he's expected to be ready for the start of training camp in late September. Um, Randle is making $28 million this coming year. He's making $30 million next year. And the year after that, he has a $32 million player option. So if you're the Knicks and you're in the camp that maybe this franchise is best served to move on from Julius Randle and bring in another co-star alongside Jalen Brunson, because Randle's a star, despite what a lot of fans, Knicks fans want to admit, Randle's a star. He's an all-NBA player two times now, and he's an all-star two times now in the last three seasons. Randall, by the way, history will show that he will be one of the greatest free agent signings in the history of this Knicks franchise. It's already shown that. However, history will also show that his current teammate is a better free agent signing after just one season in Jalen Brunson. So anyway, Randall's surgery on his ankle I don't think will impact the potential to move him this offseason I think he has a tradable contract um, I think he can be valuable this doesn't sound like it's a debilitating injury that's going to have long-term ramifications it's arthroscopic surgery it's meant to clean up that ankle that suffered two sprained ankles in the last five weeks of the season March 29th against the heat and then game five against Cleveland in late April and that really hampered him in the Miami series. Now, it wasn't just the ankle. His shot was off, and the Heat's defense had a lot to do with it as well. But um, will this surgery that he has undergone impact the Knicks' ability to trade him if need be? I don't think it will. You know, I do think, like I said, he has value to some of the— I think he has value to a team like the Knicks were when the Knicks acquired him in 2019, a team that's just looking for some sort of production. 
and he's a guy you could plug in 20 and 10, and that is all he has done ever since coming to the Knicks. In the last couple of years, he's gone well above 20 and 10. He's also led them to the playoffs two of the last three seasons. So that is something to monitor as we continue this offseason. I want to thank Jason Jackson, the play-by-play voice of the Miami Heat. Also, Doug Glanville, who you will hear in a matter of moments on the call for the Yankees and the Dodgers. Jacob Perry, Julian Kushnick, all the callers. Have a great rest of your weekend, everyone. Yanks and Dodgers coming up next. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.